page 462, you'll find the very last chapter of the book of Job. In a couple of chapters preceding this, God has said some pretty severe things to Job, basically telling him that God is in control and Job isn't. And we pick up at verse, chapter 42, at verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Oh, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And you said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer, and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Sophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. And the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were they found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. I'm reading from James 5, um, verses 7 to 12, and it's entitled, Patience in Suffering. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, un until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. 
Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's, Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Peter. Good evening. My name is Paul. If I haven't met you, it's good to see you. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of James, and we're nearing the end, just tonight and next week. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, James is my favourite book of the New Testament, also the most confronting and the most challenging, and it's the same tonight. So I'm going to pray for us as we come to this part of God's Word. Uh, Father God, we have so much to be thankful for. Father, we're thankful for a church family to meet with. We're thankful for breath in our lungs. We're thankful for uh, your precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for his sacrificial death. We're thankful, Lord, that you call us your, your children, your sons and your daughters, and you forgive us. And we're thankful, Lord, for your word, for the scriptures. We're thankful for people who labored tirelessly to preserve them, to translate them. We're thankful, Father, for the Bible's in our hands tonight. And we do pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, tonight you would teach us and correct us, that you would comfort us, encourage us, and spur us on. And I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, life is full of the unexpected, isn't it? Life is full of the unexpected. If you think back on the last 12 months of your life, how much of what happened had you planned? So much of the unexpected is, is actually quite nice, quite pleasant. You know, the unexpected new house, the unexpected holiday, the unexpected new friendship. You think, thank you, God, that's awesome. But if we're honest, so much of the unexpected is less pleasant. Let's put it that way. And the unexpected illness, the unexpected tragedy, the unexpected retrenchment, the unexpected loss of a loved one. So I want to ask you, how do you cope with the unexpected? For you personally, what happens when the unexpected happens to you? Now, what happens when the tragedy comes? What happens when the uh, debilitating illness comes? What happens when you lose your job? What happens when your marriage is failing? What happens when you are grieving? What happens with the unexpected? Now, do you curse God? Or do you cling on to him? Do you worship God or do you walk away from him? See, I, I think the way that we handle the unexpected is shaped by two things. It is shaped by our worldview and our God view. It is shaped by what we expect life to be about and who we expect God to be. 
Let me try and show you. If, if you expect life to be all about your happiness, you know, a happy marriage and a happy home or a happy job or a happy life, of course you're going to be disappointed or devastated when you're never happy. If life is all about your success or you leaving this mark on this world, of course you're going to be devastated when you fail. If life is all about your health, your fitness, your being thinner or being stronger, of course you're going to be disappointed. Because let's be honest, our, our bodies are frail and they fail us. What do you expect life to be about? What's your worldview? What about your God view? Who do you think God is? If you expect God to be this genie who just gives you what you want, when you want it, when you click your fingers, you're going to be disappointed, aren't you? If you think that God is impersonal or is cruel, then when the tragedy comes, you won't go to him, will you? If you think God is weak and impotent, then you become this all-controlling, self-sufficient person. You see... Your worldview and your God view will change the way that you deal with life. I received an email last, maybe last Saturday, from a guy called Rob, who I think has this beautiful worldview and the right God view. I'll just read a bit of it to you. Hi, all. You may or may not be aware that I checked into North Shore Private Hospital three days ago very unwell. Since then, I've gone through a huge battery of tests to determine what's going on with my body and with my cancer. Uh, today, I did a PET scan, and the results of these, the cancer has spread into my bones, primarily the pelvis, my lower vertebrae, and possibly others, into some lymph nodes. Hard to tell, but it may have spread to my lungs and possibly my neck. This is not good, of course, but it's not without hope. Brackets probably have to forget about climbing Mount Everest, though. We've received so much support from so many people, supporting ways of constant compassion, generous action, most importantly, positive prayer, for which we are all extremely thankful. And now you may well ask, where's God in all this? Come on, God. You said just ask and it should be given. Well, we asked. And it's clear you do not give what we asked for. So what's cooking, God? When I became a Christian a few years ago, one couldn't help but ponder such questions. He became a Christian through the suicide of his son. And the answer is deliciously simple. God does not promise a struggle-free life. Hear that? God does not promise a struggle-free life just because you become a Christian. What he does promise is an eternal life. An eternal life in every, every respect is far, far superior to anything we can imagine. And that's where my trust, my faith and my whole being is based in an eternal life that is far superior to anything I can imagine. That said, I'm signing off now. No strength to write further. Tons of love to you all. From Rob. That was Saturday, and he died at midday on Sunday. But he's a man who just lived with the most extraordinary worldview. God doesn't promise a struggle through life. An extraordinary God view. 
It's about eternity. It's about eternal life and a God will take him there. So is that your worldview that you're living in light of eternity? You live today because you know that God is good and you know that heaven's your home. Is that how you wake up each day thinking, this is not home, heaven's my home. Do you wake up each morning and say, God is so good to me today and I'm living for eternity. Because that's where we're heading tonight in James chapter 5. Two simple points. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming, so be patient. That's the right worldview. The Lord is coming. He's coming again. Jesus is coming back. It's called eternity. We don't live for today. We live for eternity. That's what James says in verse 5. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Now, the word used there for coming is the word parousia. It's the word used for the coming of a king, the arrival of, of royalty. He's just saying the king is coming. He really is. He's coming back, fact. And I love the fact that the Bible doesn't use the word second coming. Because his second coming, his return, the coming again, is so different from his first, isn't it? And when Jesus first came, he came in all humility. When he comes again, he'll come in glory. When he first came, he came in obscurity. When he comes again, every eye will see him. But the king is coming. Our Messiah is coming. Our Savior is coming. A real physical, visible, spectacular coming of the king to gather his people and to call us home to a place of no suffering and no pain and no persecution and no injustice. And Jesus realized that for us to live in this world as Christians is going to be hard. And so he told us how the story ends. Isn't that good of him? One in 13 verses of the Gospels, he talks about his return or talks about heavens or talks about the kingdom coming. You can't miss it. He says, this world is not all there is. In this world, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and hostility. And then there'll be a day when the trumpet call sounds and Jesus Christ will return with power and with glory and it will be unmissable. And on that day, the dead in Christ will rise. And on that day, we'll be totally transformed with new bodies, resurrection bodies and no pain and no sickness and no suffering. Now, I think we know that. Because we're good evangelical Bible Christians. We know the Bible talks about the return of Jesus, don't we? We say it in our creeds. We sing it in our songs. We just don't live as though it could be today. It doesn't shape our daily lives. Well, James, in his very practical book, says the coming of Jesus Christ should, should color and shape and explain everything about your life. Live, live for eternity. Live for eternity, he says. Do you remember Arthur Stace, Mr. Eternity? There's a man who grasped eternity. If you know his story, he was born in 1884 in Balmain in the slums. His, his parents were drunkards. His sisters were prostitutes. He was brought up in the, the brothels and the bars. He was a self-confessed alcoholic, illiterate, and dyslexic man. And he walked into a church called St. Barnabas Broadway on the 6th of August, 1930. He heard about Jesus and he heard about eternity. A few weeks later, he was into a sermon at another church in Darlinghurst. And I'll quote Arthur Stath here. The preacher shouted, I wish I could shout eternity through the streets of Sydney. 
the preacher kept on repeating that word, eternity, eternity. And his words were ringing through my brain as I left church that morning. And suddenly I began crying. I felt a powerful call from the Lord to write that word eternity. I had a piece of chalk in my pocket. I bent right down and I wrote that word. The funny thing is I could hardly spell my own name. I had no schooling. I couldn't have spelled eternity for a hundred quid. But it just came out smoothly in beautiful copper plate script. I couldn't understand. I still can't. But I've been writing that word eternity at least 50 times a day for the last 30 years. I think that one word eternity gets the message across. Don't live for today, live for eternity. Let me ask you, do you live for eternity? Do you wake up each day living for the eternal life? Living as though Jesus could come back today? According to verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. He says, you two be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is, is near. Now he's not saying it's imminent. I mean, it's 2,000 years since Jesus said he returned, but it's still near. Let me explain what James means by that. Let me ask you, what did Jesus have to do to save you from your sins? He had to be born. Oh, he's done that, tick. He had to live a, a perfect, sinless life. Well, he's done that. Praise God for that, tick. He had to die on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins, and he's done that. Praise God for that, tick. That's done. He had to defeat death, didn't he? The tomb had to be empty, and he's done that as well. Hallelujah. He had to rise. He's done that. He had to ascend to his Father. He's done that. He had to sit at the right hand of his heavenly Father. He's done all that. He's doing that right now. What's the last thing that needs to happen so that you can be confident your sins are forgiven? What's the last thing that needs to happen so that you know you're heading for eternity? What's the last thing he's promised to do? What has Jesus promised to do but he has yet to do? He's promised to come again. Now that's what it means to be near. It's the last thing that God has to do to wrap up this messed up, crazy world. Now sure, it seems like a very long time from our time frame. But God does not work on human time frame, does he? Ever seen uh, the films or read the books? Narnia, the, the lion, the witch in the wardrobe? I love those scenes when the, the, the children walk through the wardrobe in, into Narnia and they, they enjoy life in Narnia and they're there for, for days and weeks and months and even years. And then they walk back through the wardrobe, back into earth if you want. And from an earthly time frame, it's just been like that. That's what God is saying here. Don't think in earthly time frames. Yes, it's been a long time, but from a heavenly one, it's just a, the flash of an eye. And when he comes, verse 9, he is coming to judge. That's what verse 9 tells us. The judge is standing at the door, and that's supposed to be an encouragement, you know. The judge, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, is, is standing at the door. You're supposed to imagine Jesus, and he's got his hand on the door handle, and he's ready, and he's waiting to step back into the world to judge it. See, he's not just coming to gather us home and to end our misery and to end our persecution. He's coming to bring justice. Don't you long for that, to bring justice to this unjust, messed up world? 
It's going to happen. It's called Judgment Day. Don't be scared about that day. If you're trusting in Jesus, you are safe, you are secure in his arms. You're covered by his blood. You have nothing to fear. But he is coming. We need to live with that backdrop, that worldview, that perspective. This is what life is about, preparing to meet our king. Here's how I do it. I, I like to think of the return of Jesus as like stepping through this curtain into eternity. So I wake up each day and the curtain is before my eyes, because it could be today. And I don't put the curtain five years or 10 years or 15 years into the future. Praise God for that, because I, I honestly don't want to know what God's got in store for me for the next five, 10, 15 years, because it would scare the heck out of me. But he gives me enough grace for today to get through today and live in light of eternity. And it could be tomorrow, and it could be the next day, and it could be the next day. You just walk through life with that perspective. It could be today, help me to live today in light of eternity. So are you doing that? How would you live your life today if you knew Christ was coming back tomorrow? How would you live your life tonight if you knew he was coming back at midnight? Remember when George Whitfield was asked that question, how would you live your life today or spend your time today if you knew Christ would return tonight? George Whitfield, the famous evangelist of the 1700s, said this. Took out his diary, 8.30, I'm reading the Bible with Mr. X. 11 o'clock, I'm preaching. 3 p.m., I'm visiting the sick. 4 p.m., I'm preaching in that field. Uh, no change. That's how I'd live my life today. No change. See, James says that the Lord is coming. Jesus Christ is returning. And he wants us to wait patiently. I think the church that James is writing to are slow learners because he, he basically says the same thing four times. But maybe we're slow as well. Verse 7, be patient then until the Lord's coming. Verse 7 again, the farmer patiently waits for the crops. Verse 8, you too then be patient. Verse 10, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, be patient, be patient, be patient. Wait, wait patiently for the return of Christ. You cannot tell God when Jesus Christ will return. He just asks you to wait expectantly, patiently. The illustration he gives is a good one. The, the farmer who waits for the land to yield its crops, and the, the farmer toils the soil, he plants the seed, and then he waits patiently, praying for rain. But as he waits, the farmer doesn't put his feet up for six months. You know, he doesn't say, well, I've done all the work, now it's down to you, God. He keeps working, he keeps toiling each day, waiting, looking, longing for that harvest. Are you longing for the harvest of heaven? I want to be part of that bumper crop. I hope you do too. But as I wait for that bumper crop, that bumper crop of people that is in eternity, I'm kind of torn, you know. I want to pray, come Lord Jesus today, because from my perspective, that will be the best thing ever. But there are so many people who I love dearly including my own family, who as of today are not part of that bumper harvest because they don't yet know Christ. 
And I'm kind of torn. I want to pray, come Lord Jesus today. But I was saying, no, not today. Please, not today. But somebody, please tell them about Jesus today. That's what it means to wait patiently. You're, you're actively looking for ways to talk about your Savior, to serve your Savior, to, to prepare your hearts and minds, to become more like Christ-like, waiting for that day, longing for that day. And we are pretty impatient, aren't we? I had an appointment a few weeks ago at 11 o'clock. And by 5 past 11, my, my feet were twitching. And by 10 past 11, my, my eyes on my watch. And by quarter past 11, I was going, oh, for goodness sake, hurry up. I was at the uh, Milsons Point train station last Wednesday. I walked to the platform. Next train, 13 minutes. <laughs> I was horrified. It's been 2,000 years. That's a long way, isn't it? it's worth waiting for please don't wander why, why don't we wait why, why, why don't we pray come Lord Jesus why are we not living today longing aching for eternity I think the answer is this Sydney is so good Sydney is so beautiful isn't it beautiful weather beautiful beaches Beautiful houses, beautiful food, beautiful people, and cities are so beautiful. If you're thinking that, can I humbly just say that you haven't really grasped how majestic and glorious heaven's going to be. So as we wait, patiently, what's one area that might derail your faith? What's one area in life that might stop you longing for the return of Christ? What, what would you write about? If you were writing the Bible, what would you talk about? What's one area that this church needs to hear about that might stop us waiting for the return of Jesus? Money? Wealth? Sex? Society? It doesn't mention any of those things. The one thing that James suddenly talks about again is our tongues, is our words. He says in verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Cut your whinging, cut your complaining, cut your grumbling. Stop walking to church and having a hissy fit or complaining about anything and everything and anybody and everybody because the way you use your tongue, it will actually show you whether you're preparing yourself for glory. How can you grumble against brothers and sisters that you're going to spend eternity with? Same in verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, don't, don't swear. That is, don't take an oath, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Just say a simple yes or no. Stop being inconsistent. Stop with your lips promising to do something but never following through. I find that fascinating that the words that come out of our mouth, our tongues, can actually stop us really preparing for eternity. We're back to chapter three, aren't we? Tame your tongue, control your tongue. That's our first point tonight. The Lord is coming. He really is, so be patient. I love James because he's so pastoral. He's so pastoral because he is aware 
There's people he's writing to who are in pain and they're suffering. And I'm aware there are people in front of me tonight who are in pain and you are suffering. And I'm aware there's people in this room tonight who have gone through trials and tragedies far, far, far worse than anything I've experienced. And so for me to glibly say, well, Jesus is coming back, it's all going to be okay, it can sound partially insensitive, can't it? And I think that's why verses 10 and 11 are there. Because James wants us to know this about the Lord as well. Yes, he's coming, but he's also compassionate. The Lord is compassionate, so persevere or press on. He says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the, the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Take Jeremiah, take Isaiah, take Ezekiel, take Daniel. Uh, they, they suffered, but they persevered and are now in glory. Now, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. Those who have endured, those who have pressed on with Jesus, who have clung on to Jesus. You've heard of Job's perseverance. And have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and full of mercy. Now, if you know the story of Job, I don't think those words, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, would trip off the tongue. Do you? If you know the story of Job, Job is an upright, godly man. And God gave Satan that terrible permission to destroy Job's life. He took away his possessions, his property, his kids, his health. And he added to the misery by suddenly these endless friends who just talk this nonsense. And so when you read Job, we'd say that the Lord is, seems to be cruel, not compassionate. But James says that the Lord has been compassionate to Job. How does that work? Listen carefully. God loved Job enough to break him and to humble him. God was compassionate to Job to, to deepen his faith through the most tragic of circumstances. Job experienced an intimacy with God and a, a closeness to God that he had not experienced before because he pressed on through the trial. He pressed on through the pain. It's a bit like uh, sitting through a, a lecture on the topic of you know, sweetness. You could go through lecture after lecture of the topic of what the word sweet means. And you can understand it here, but you can't really understand it until you've tasted sweetness on your lips, like a, a taste of honey. And then you get it. Same with suffering. I could preach sermon after sermon after sermon on suffering, and that would be helpful. You'd have all your head knowledge what to do when you suffer. But the moment you really suffer, the moment you really feel that pain, you get suffering. And that was Job. He understood suffering. We had it read tonight. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, God. God, before the trials, before the tragedy, before the pain, I, I knew about you, God. I understood you, God. I had my theology right. But now my eyes have seen you, God. I've experienced your goodness. I've experienced your sovereignty. I've experienced your glory. And I hear that time and time and time again, that people's relationship with God are, are deepened through the pain, through the tragedy, through the trial. 
because they've persevered and they've pressed on and they've endured. God is so compassionate. He's so merciful. It says verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. Job was blessed, wasn't he? You know, I've told you before, I I find the ending of Job so, so frustrating. Because we read tonight that after his trial, as he persevered, God blessed him with double of everything. Double the amount of cattle, double the amount of sheep, double the amount of donkeys. It's a sugar-coated Disney ending. It all, all ended happily ever after. But that's not the blessing. The blessing is this, that he had a rich relationship with God. But more than that, he had a resurrection blessing to come. As a mathematician, Job 42 is a wonderful chapter. Because God says that he doubled everything. And he did double the number of sheep and the number of donkeys and the number of cattle. But he did not double the number of kids, did he? He gave them the same number of kids, seven sons and seven daughters. And I love that. Because Job 42 is about resurrection blessings because those first seven kids are now in glory and those first three daughters are now in glory and Job will see them all again. And so as he perseveres, he is confident of his resurrection blessings. And that's what is going to keep us pressing on and keep us persevering, that promise of the resurrection blessings. God does not promise a struggle-free life in the here and now, does he? God does not promise us no pain and no suffering now. I wish he did, but he doesn't. But he does promise us eternity. And because of that, we persevere, we press on. I love that word, persevere. It's not your stiff upper lip. It's not the English, you know, pretend everything's okay. Through the tears, through the pain, that daily, hourly, minute by minute, trust, confidence, steadfastness, holding on to God. Job held on to God by the thinnest of threads, didn't he? Well, actually, no, he didn't. God held on to Job by the mightiest of grips. Someone said once that they'd hit rock bottom. They'd hit rock bottom. And then the bottom fell out. And they went into free fall. And only in free fall did they realize that God was holding on to them. Because even at rock bottom, they were so self-sufficient. God does hold on to us. God does never let us go. Those who he's called to be his children, he will hold on to for all eternity. He will take us into glory and we'll see him face to face. How good is God to do that to us? Full of compassion, full of mercy. So let me ask you again, are you living your life in light of eternity? Do you wake up today thinking it could be today, it could be today? I'm going to embarrass one person here tonight. But Lizzie, you are such an encouragement to me. Just the way that you always got the return of Christ about eternity on your agenda. You inspire me and you encourage me. I'm thankful for you, Lizzie. Heaven's our home. Heaven is our home. This is not home. And one day Jesus Christ will come back. And we see him face to face. 
and we'll be surrounded on that throne, worshiping him for all eternity. And so I want to pray, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, please come. Will you join me as I pray? Our Father, we are so thankful that you are reigning. You're in charge of it all. And you know the time and the date when your Son, the Lord Jesus, will return to wrap up this world and bring justice and perfect peace. And Father, we long for that day, and so we do pray, come, Lord Jesus. But Lord, in the midst of suffering and pain and hardships, help us to persevere, help us to cling on to you as you cling on to us by your mighty hand. In Jesus' name.